For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Bollier. As consumers look to business to solve the biggest challenges of our time, they are throwing their support and dollars behind brands they trust. But here's the problem. Less than half of brands are seen as trustworthy. So how do brands build trust and break through with consumers? Pranav Yadav, global CEO at NeuroInsight, a leading neuromarketing and neuroanalytics resource, says the answer lies in making the subconscious conscious. Got it? Okay. To put it in simpler terms, businesses must dig deep by tapping into subconscious human motivations, emotions, and intuition that influence behavior. Only then, Pranav says, can brands truly develop marketing messages that leave a positive impression, influence buying decisions, and build trust. To discuss this topic at length, including the role purpose plays in building trust, I am joined by Pranav, a Great Mind Award winner. He advises CEOs and CMOs on how to make compelling connections between product, communication, and the consumer without being held behind the existing frameworks or models. Pranav, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So off the bat, there's mounting evidence, I'm sure you've seen, that trusted brands are more apt to drive growth than those that are not trusted. So from your perspective, why haven't brands placed more of an emphasis on becoming trustworthy? Or are they trying, but their attempts are inauthentic? You know, uh, the parallel I'll use is that we've had written language for about 3,000 years at this point. Uh, and before that, you know, we had oral cultures for another, you know, depending on who you're asking, 500 to 1,000 years. And for any oral or written wisdom, if you go to the earliest form, uh, it tells you that life must be lived beyond the material, uh, that things should be done genuinely without any expectation of the result, and that money and power and greed and gluttony and all of these things are bad things. Yet, you know, 3,000 years later, so much progress later, quantum physics uh, has been invented. We still actually are susceptible and falling for the exact same things that we were facing and falling for in rather simple times. So there must be truly something in human nature that, that allows us, despite having wisdom for of thousands of years, overlook that wisdom, despite knowing deep down inside that it's actually a correct thing to do. Because the short-term gain, the, the, the short-sightedness of this moment completely overwhelms us and overtakes our decision-making. These same people who are willing to kill other people uh, in their own countries because they don't believe in uh, an ideology and think they want to create a better future for their kids will go around owning five cars and owning guns uh, to create the exact opposite of the future they want to create for their children. It's mm -hmm. short-sightedness. Uh, so I don't really blame a person sitting in a marketing department whose average tenure is between two to five years within that company to come in and actually say, hey, let us focus on the most fleeting of all concepts, the most immeasurable of all concepts, something that actually does help me. I recognize it, but helps me in the long run and actually doesn't really help me get the promotion that I want to get. So in terms of human motivation and how we operate, 
you know, your question itself has the answer. Like we know that trust actually impacts, um, you know, how people treat you. Yet at the same time, we don't have the right system or motivation to actually be working on that at all. Like they will spend their money on five other TikTok ads instead because it'll move product in in the current moment. Right. That's interesting. What a perspective. You know, on the flip side, the uh, latest Edelman Trust Barometer just came out and that found that consumers once again say they place more trust in business to address social and political issues than they do in government and NGOs, which I personally find a little fascinating. But do you find that surprising given the fact that a majority of consumers don't think that brands will deliver on their promises? Yeah. You know what they say about statistics. So I was a math major in college along with a couple other things. But, you know, they say in math statistics are, are interesting because what they show is nice, but what they hide is vital. And, and in this question that you have, which may seem contradictory, the truth is both of these statements are true. Both of these statements are true that people do not trust brands and it is true that people trust governments even less than they trust brands to be to be doing the right thing mm-hmm. because the trust equation is rather unique you know when you look at uh, how again despite culture uh, or or any kind of experience how people describe happiness it boils down to a simple equation happiness is reality minus expectation mm-hmm. so you have a certain expectation of a situation for example you coming into this podcast you thought you'd get certain kind of answers out of it. Now, if I happen to actually exceed those expectations, then you will be a happy person at the end of this podcast. If I happen to give you bad answers or answers that your audience will not find helpful and therefore, you know, fail you on your expectations, then I'll leave you an unhappy person, as simple as that. Now, trust is that exact same equation, but done consistently over time. Because if you consist, if you lose that consistency part out of it, then essentially you have disappointed me and therefore I don't trust you. Trust means that I can, I can trust you and I can believe you to do something over and over again with certain kind of consistency. Now, it mustn't be the exact same action, but it should be the exact same result. Like the ethos of that entire expectation and where you stand relative to it set or your attempt towards it itself you know, the beauty of actual human psyche is that we give points for actual honest attempts as well. You may fail at actually getting to the right thing. But as long as you tried sincerely, you fought hard enough, we give points and enough points that it's it's worth any kind of forgiveness that we have in this world. So the reason, the reason why I described this equation is that actually it'll help you figure out why people are disappointed in brands and why actually, despite being disappointed in brands, they trust the governments even less. Now, you look at the remarkable history of this country, right? You go back to a time where, you know, people in the colonies were looking at each other and saying things like, well, there shouldn't be taxation without representation. We should have a government for the people and by the people. And, you know, there came the Declaration of Independence, which as a single document, even someone who was not uh, born here, granted, you know, do come from a country with similar democratic roots. So really spoke to me that that someone a few hundred years ago, there were people like us who came up with this idea and, and said, like, this is how we must govern ourselves 
And so our expectation from public servants is very different from what our expectations of corporations is. So, so one point is that, you know, the expectation set is different in terms of my equation, happiness minus expectation. Now, the, the reality of the situation in terms of what you perceive is driven by not just the actions, but also the media that you consume. For any kind of political action, there is a 24-hour news cycle that's telling you all the things, depending on your worldview, depending on where you're consuming this information from, that you, you, you know, you're consuming things about like all the things the U.S. government does wrong when it comes to Ukraine and Russia, for example, if you were to watch a specific channel. Now, that feeds your reality, right? So that's reality minus expectation. And then there's consistency in action. Can you imagine that this populace, despite what the U.S. say, for example, did to South America, to the Middle East, was actually very trusting of the government? Because despite the government acting in every way where people in South America and Middle East would consider America to be the exact opposite of what they consider to be a trustworthy partner. People here, this populace, from their perspective, the government was acting in their interest and solving for their future, or at least that was the perception. And therefore, there was trust. Where the government is right now is that there is no consistency in that action, the last piece that I talk about, and they're not even like actually beating those expectations. The expectations are high, the consistency is missing. So the, the trust with the government is actually at the lowest point it has been in a very, very long time. Now, the trust in corporations is not high either. The employees don't trust their employer. The consumer doesn't trust who it's, they're buying stuff from. But still, uh, at least there is consistency in action on this side of the, of the game that they are profit-driven. And, and as long as there is some good uh, out there that does generate them profit. And there are plenty of goods that actually can generate profit too, like actually being an employer who hires all kinds of people. Enough research has been shown that uh, that's actually good for business. Hire people of color, hire people of all genders, despite their sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. Now, those are good things that can be done. And as long as it's generating profit, at least this person is still likely to do the right thing. So there are opportunities that corporations have now to actually, you know, act consistently along, even if, it, if their objective is to generally just generate profit. Now, on top of that, uh, brands suddenly in the past decade or so have gotten their own 24-hour news cycle. Now, the, the, the traffic of communication and setting expectations uh, that you had uh, with the counterparty was actually in, in very discrete small moments, whether it was press releases, whether it was, you know, earning announcements, et cetera, et cetera. But now brands are present within social media, interacting with their consumers on a 24-hour cycle. It's a boon and a bane because, uh, again, your social media manager changes and the tone uh, and the consistency changes. And, and you have to keep, you know, a consistent face uh, in, in the world. But at least you have a voice. Uh, and when used well, it could be used to actually build trust with the counterparty. The fact that they're doing a terrible job at it is a different story altogether, but it's an opportunity. Let's take a, just a, a little step back here. How does a brand define, establish, and drive that trust beyond consistency? You mentioned that. There have got to be other key characteristics of a trusted brand. 
And I'm hoping you can address that question, not only from how do you build trust internally with employees, but also externally with the other stakeholders? Well, I will go back to your question. I think the three words that you use were, how does a brand define, establish, and drive trust? You see the words that you're using around trust is define, establish, and drive. You know, we couldn't use a more corporate definition uh, of how to drive trust. Trust is like love. You don't get love. You fall in love. You know, you don't just get trust. You have to earn trust. Um, in fact, actually, just before this, I went to Chat GPT and asked Chat GPT, what are all the verbs that are most used with the word trust? And if, if you allow me, I'll read sure. you a few. I'd love to hear it. It starts with, you know, a, a couple of words. When, and in, a, in, in the long list, there are a few words that actually allow you to establish trust. It says earning and building uh, are the two words it came up with uh, in terms of the, how you actually get there. You actually then have a word called maintaining, uh, which is used a lot with trust. So you can imagine actually just keeping trust itself right. is, is, is hard. So this word maintain is used a lot. And all the other words that are used with the word trust are actually negative. So they're losing trust, breaking trust, trust, uh, betraying trust. And then you actually get to a set of words that are around getting trust back, which is restoring trust. So essentially, in our language, which ChatGPT is, is processing, over centuries of written material, essentially is telling you how we look at trust and how society, how, how our evolution uh, with, with, and our relationship with this idea of trust sits. And it tells you that it is a highly complicated thing. It has a delicate balance. It breaks easily. It's, it, all the words that it uses to actually build it are hard work oriented words. You have to earn it. You know what it takes to earn something. And so um, I'll give you an example and then we'll get to answering your proper question. We recently had this client came up with a campaign around how they are so supportive of this uh, particular aspect of women's health. And this campaign was mostly oriented around how men don't understand it, but this brand clearly does. Uh, it doesn't give a solution. Essentially, it just keeps reestablishing the fact that men don't get it. And that's about it. And then they you know, went through a few testing cycles as people do with you know, traditional uh, focus groups and surveys and didn't really get any satisfactory answers. They were getting low association with the brand. And then they did some other superficial biometric testing like facial encoding and eye tracking and stuff like that, which you know are the buzzwords in the industry sometimes, which they didn't get much out of either. So eventually they, they, they decided to shell out the money and come to us and be like, well, you guys, you know, you claim to be able to predict how people would behave, like help, help us decode the situation. And while, you know, what we were able to show, show was that there was little to no personal relevance uh, because people didn't believe they were saying there was an absolute withdrawal response. What we actually also did for them was we teased out the entire ecosystem of their communication channels and their actions in market. And not once before this campaign had this one particular brand done anything anything to do with women's health, let alone the awareness of it and now becoming the flag bearers of it. Now, 
you can't and you can't put five million dollars behind a campaign and expect the world to suddenly just believe you mm-hmm. in your actions and therefore be you know wondering sitting in your boardrooms. I don't know what happened there. We created such a good spot, dude. It's a spot. People say things all the time. People say things at parties. Do you start believing those people as to what they say at parties? No. You start believing them that after they leave the party, when they said they will introduce you to someone, they introduce you to someone. After they leave the party, they send you a thank you note. After they leave the party, they actually take action or do something for them, uh, for you that they spoke about or send you a box of chocolates that you spoke about. That's when you begin to believe that person. Now, the brands eventually end up taking action pretty much never. Uh, yet they think their communication itself should be used uh, to, to be able to establish uh, or build or earn trust. And that's a complete fallacy. Now, your question about, you know, one, how does one do it? I would not use the word authenticity because I think it is a completely polluted word in this industry. Uh, words, words like storytelling, authenticity. I think they have lost all meaning to me when it comes from the advertising and marketing industry. Interesting. Because much like any other situation, when you use a word in its most empty fashion, much like the boy who cried wolf, that's how this industry uses these words. And I don't fully blame them because they they really have, have given up on the true craft of marketing. And they, what they're left behind with is just empty words. And, and it's empty words. And like, as my favorite poet uh, would do is and say that uh, if, if you were to personify a word, its meaning is like its soul. And much like if you were to take a soul away from uh, a person, it would, you'd see like zombies walking around. It's exactly what you do with words if you actually use it without their meaning. And those are the empty words that this, this industry uses. And because there's so much, and people will keep talking about, oh, you don't understand my pain. Media is so fragmented. You know, audiences demand so much. No, actually, people need the exact same thing. People need to be understood. And people need to be delivered something that speaks to their deep subconscious needs. And, and yes, it's an expectation that the counterparty would try to understand that because that's how we've survived this, this entire time. And the magic is not being present in 10,000 different platforms because you think that's how you're going to win someone over, chasing them and retargeting them from their Google search to their TikToks, to their Instagrams, to now their emails, to now the outdoor out-of-home billboard that they will see. Yeah, sure, that may help you get some conversion. But actually, you will get insane conversion if you told a story that resonates with people so deeply that it speaks to them and they will seek it out. You don't have to go to them. They will come to you. And I feel like that, that art has been completely lost. Now, trust is built differently internally versus externally because of the kind of exposure, right? For example, people within my company get to see me every day, right? So they see my actions a lot more than other people would. So even when I may not have words to actually address a situation, they see how I act in a situation. 
And those actions internally build trust. So it depends with the amount of exposure you have to the counterparty. But to the outside world, they don't get to see my actions at all. I may be, you know, uh, talking about all the great things in the world. But if I'm, you know, if I'm actually not doing it, they don't get to see it as much. So they will believe it if they actually see me in a situation where I'm talking about it. And the deliverer of that information to them is someone who is a trustworthy partner. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is, if you're an advertiser, internally, to gain trust of the people who work within the company, the brand, they need to see that in your actions. And that's how you build trust. But if you actually have to get the trust of the consumer, then you have to be present through your actions, through your words, in places that actually these people associate with legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And you know, we did this entire project with NPR, uh, where what we were able to see was that the same advertiser, when they show up in ad, you know, an advertiser with NPR, the levels of trust associated with that brand suddenly go way higher than them being present in a non-NPR, like purely evenly traded media commodity. And and so there's a trust that that audience associated with, associates with NPR, mm-hmm. and being present there, you know, produces that trust. So you have to understand the perception of that expectation in that equation. What is driving that? Because if I'm present in front of you all the time, you can see my actions. My actions can actually help set those expectations. But uh, if I'm not present with you, then my perception is going to set those expectations. And my perception is driven by all the places I'm otherwise present at and who I'm present with. So are you advocating for for brands to become activists like Patagonia and Ben & Jerry's? You talk a lot about action here. Yeah. And that, and they're all about action. Are you saying that the, really the business model needs to sort of veer in that direction? Well, that would be ideal, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. So I'm not mm-hmm. advocating for it. Because in that process, what these guys end up doing, and I once, you know, again, I tell a lot of side stories. Mm-hmm. I once sat in a room with 20, you know, C-level execs coming together to build this company. And they had, you know, it was going to be an advisory, like high level consulting firm. And I won't name it so that, you know, we we protect the, the sanctity of it. And these 20 people can could not come up with a mission statement because they don't know what a mission is. And they could not come up with the words that could articulate it in a way that would be consistent with their actions. And these are like leaders of, of, a, of a lot of firms. Now, mm-hmm. my problem with, you know, advocating for what you thought I was advocating for is people try to retrofit their product into a, a, a mission, right. which is not how we need, any, need anything to be. You, I'm perfectly fine for someone who produces valves, uh, you know, or, or screws, to to not have some world-changing mission if they don't have one. Yet at the same time, what I am advocating for is that there are are things, uh, there are stories uh, to be told that can actually, if you're going to advertise, you want to move your screws, right? You want to sell your product. You can sell it in a variety of ways. You can either make a story that's superficial uh, about a guy who essentially is just very fond of screwing everything. Uh, he just puts screws on everywhere he goes. You know, you made a funny story. It could be memorable. You can you can do that. But you can actually 
uh, create a story of how screws not just put tables together, but bring families together. And those are not just one kind of family, every kind of family. That when I came to America as an 18-year-old, with none of the cultural references that I have now in this country after having grown up in this country, the only way I had to associate with people was to dig two layers beneath the surface. And and turns out people have gone through similar experiences in life when it comes to emotions. And the time I spent with my dad fixing things with a screwdriver, it was similar to the guy I was going to school with in Minnesota. And if you are able to tell a story like that of a same-sex family or any other kind of family, an interracial family or whatever, not in the superficial form as advertisers attempt to do today, then you are actually moving product and moving culture at the same time. And I feel that that's not, you know, I don't want them to like create a mission when they don't have to, but they can do the right thing because we are believe it or not, with the dollars that we spend on media and marketing, we are investing in creating culture. And we can either create create the Kardashian culture, which we have, um, and nothing wrong with anybody who likes it. Or we can tell stories that informs uh, and, and passes on a value system to future generations who will soon be far removed from anything that we've known for the past few thousand years. Hey there, Beyond Profit listener. The ANA Educational Foundation, or AEF for short, helps marketers and advertisers build their talent pipelines with top diverse candidates while preparing students for careers in marketing. Through initiatives like the MADE Internship Program, the Campus Speakers Program, and one-to-one mentoring, the AEF is building a better, more purposeful future for our industry. For more information, visit AEF.com. And now, back to our show. I'm speaking today with Pranav Yadav, Global CEO of Neuro Insight. So I mentioned this in my intro about uh, having you talk about the role that brand purpose plays in building trust. Can you talk a little bit about that and the importance of purpose and to tapping into consumers' motivations and desires? So purpose, much like, you know, you have that old saying where there is no vision, people will perish. It's that, you know, if you do not have a purpose, People don't know what to actually align on. My uh, friend, philosopher, and guide, John Zweig, who's uh, himself a legend in the industry, he's a fantastic jazz musician on top of that, and does uh, a lovely little show and tell where he shows up in a, in a, in a new city uh, and invites a bass player he's never met. And he would uh, essentially get on stage meeting the, the bass player for the first time. Uh, and essentially say, you know, no talk, let's just play. And they begin to play. And you can see that, you know, first they are familiarizing themselves with each other. And then over time, they begin to actually play a remarkable song. And now you can actually see them uh, really uh, improvise as they go. And then John talks about how did this happen? It happened with one, each party knowing their instrument, right? Two, developing the mutual trust that the counterparty knows their instrument. So I have to believe that this person knows what they're doing. And thirdly, and most importantly, the setting of the common goal. 
the setting of that common goal is what helps you align. This is where we're going. And I know that we're both solving for that one thing, which is the song in this case. And once you have the, the talent um, or the craft or the skill set to know your instrument, you have the trust that the other party knows that too. You believe that both of you are actually going for the same thing altogether. That's when the improvisation and the magic of creation and creativity takes over, mm-hmm. right? So vision uh, in a company uh, and, you know, and, and purpose uh, plays that part. If you have a purpose and you act in alignment with that purpose, you have showcased to everybody else who believes in a similar purpose or anything that's actually in the vicinity of it, mm-hmm. that that's the direction I will go in. And if you were to join this movement, you are going to be contributing to something that moves us in that direction. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why uh, purpose becomes important. And that's why that's the role that trust plays in, in bringing this entire unit together because you can set a purpose. But if I don't trust that you know what you're doing, or that you are going in that direction, then then I'm not going to walk with you. And that's the role that purpose plays. Uh, and, and it's all important. Mm-hmm. A couple of months ago, Pranav, when we were talking, um, I believe you said something along the lines that brands should view purpose as a principle rather than a rule mm-hmm. because meaning of words changes over time. So can you just elaborate on that, on that idea? Did I get it right, first of all? <laughs> you totally did. So... Oh man! Uh, now I'm I'm feeling a little guilty that I use a lot of parables, but I will I will still still give you this one. the The distinction between a principle and a rule is this: a principle is that I only hire smart people. A rule is I hire smart men from Harvard. So, while if that rule were around in the 40s or 50s, it would really not be problematic at all. You know, most of the people going to, uh, you know, a school uh, were men, um, and and you were probably getting a pretty decent crop from Harvard. But over time, there are other good places, and and other people have gotten opportunities to go to college. And if you were to just follow that rule, you would actually not be doing justice, not just to society, but to your company. But a principle would allow you to hire any kind of person who went to any kind of college while holding uh, yourself accountable for the one thing that mattered. So the principle is, it it has fuzzy boundaries, but it is very, very, very rigid in what it wants to solve for, that I want smart people to work for my company. Because if I were to blindly follow a rule, I would find a dumb man from Harvard uh, and I will miss out from this genius woman from Baruch. If you just you know, shift your focus to principles rather than rules, then 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 it allows you to actually be be better in life, let alone as a business. But again, you know, if if a company said in 1920s that we're going to be manufacturing everything in an environmentally friendly fashion, that is, and the actions they would take then would be different from the action they would need to take in 2023. But that's a principle-based statement. If they said that, you know, we will not use X kind of metal or X kind of whatever, you know, you could have moved on 50 years and nobody uses that metal anymore. How relevant is that statement? So you only, again, as an individual, as a society, and as a company, 
hold yourself accountable to principles because they don't really fail you. But these rules, they always fail you. Pranav, your company's implicit technology, it allows you to filter subconscious associations from conscious responses from consumers. So why is that so critical to identifying the true feelings of people or the true feelings people have about brands, I should say? So the past 5,000 years of philosophy or the past 100 years of neuroscience will tell you that most of the decision-making that takes place takes place in the subconscious. And by definition of the subconscious, it's sub below your conscious awareness, meaning that people themselves, 90% of the time, do not know why they make decisions the way they do. Let that sink in for a second. 90% of the time, forget consumers. You or I do not know why we do things the way we do because our brain is structured to process a lot of information without us actually consciously recognizing or realizing that we are processing it. It is one, how we're processing the present, but it's also how we save memories, how we tap back into memories, how we associate one thing with another. Um, the other day, a friend of mine you know, gave me a mango and I tasted it. I had tears in my eyes and I said, I feel like I just tasted my childhood. My childhood in India, those hot summers, sitting out there in like 120 degree weather, having this cold mango, waiting to go out to play as long as, as soon as the sun goes down. It brought back all of those things. Was I actively trying to solve for that? No, it was subconscious associations. So same thing with brands, you know, as again, another thing I learned from my friend philosopher guide is culture is built on myths, stories, songs, and rituals. And essentially, all a brand is ever trying to do is to participate in culture through these myths, stories, songs, and rituals and become a part of it so that every time people visit some aspect of their lives, this brand can actually be a part of it. Mm -hmm. that's, that's all they're trying to do. Whether they're doing a good job at it, whole different story. But that's the entire point. And so, so the reason why we need to truly understand the deep subconscious drivers of motivation and action is because that's how everybody acts and we're so far away from it mm -hmm. by just noticing what people say. Because what people say does not correlate with what people do. And if I need to give you an example, you can look at the last couple elections that we've had or Brexit, where polls, which is the most sophisticated form of surveying in the world, would tell you one thing when you have a 50-50% chance of being right and still get it wrong. And, and that's just purely because what we say is not what we do. So how does this focus on the subconscious effect marketing messaging? And how does that affect you know, the building of trust? Yeah, so... What we do is we tease it out two ways. One is directly by mapping people's brains. And we have 20-something electrodes measuring the speed of the electrical activity in different parts of the brain, which allows us to look at different physiological metrics, such as what is going into long-term memory, what is personally relevant, what is emotionally engaging, whether it's the lean-in or lean-back kind of response. So these are things we can actually study from the brain. The brain is not actually very good at teasing out love versus lust because there's no geolocation 
within the brain that can tell you the difference or whether it's ethical or not. There's, again, no location within the brain that lights up when people think something is ethical. So when we have to tease out whether the associations of something with trust or or being ethical or being reliable or being accurate or being relevant goes, we use another technology called, called the implicit technology where we look, it's an online task, which is a speed-based task, where we correlate the speed of your reaction to the subconscious association you may have attached between a thing, a brand, a piece of communication, or a marketing message to that particular attribute that we have in question. So with the combination of these two things, what we're able to tease out in marketing messaging is first, you know, again, if you have any kind of communication, it needs to do one, at least one of two things, if not both. It needs to make sure that this brand or key message is embedded into your long-term memories. Because Mm -hmm. unless and until you embed something in the long-term memory, you don't have that information to react to a day later, a week later, a month later, or a year in the future. So if I'm giving you some sort of communication, I hope as a brand that I'm telling you a story that is engaging enough for you to, at that moment of me being present as a brand or a key message, committing that that to memory. Two, I want to make sure that the story I'm telling is reinforcing the subconscious attributes because I'm not going out and implicitly, if Samsung made an ad, it doesn't say that, oh, look, I'm innovative. They take a phone, they throw it into the water and it floats into the water. And that imagery is supposed to make you feel Look at how innovative these guys are. They create phones that you know don't get water damage. It's implicit. It's not an explicitly stated fact. So you hope that that story is actually reinforcing the brand attributes that, that I stand for and that my brand stands for. And so what we come in and do is actually on both those levels, one using you know neuroscience and sticking electrodes on people's heads, able to measure very accurately um, what is going into long-term memory and predict whether people are likely to act on that message with about an 86% accuracy, which mm-hmm. is remarkable in the in the marketing industry. And two, using the implicit technology, able to tease out the subconscious associations and the drivers and whether or not these attributes align with the equity that brand was trying to drive or not. Mm-hmm. Lastly, Pranav, it's suggested on your website that the concept of human imagination and the big ideas we hope it can create is outdated. Um, So why is that? And how can the marketing industry in particular move to a higher, more trusting place? So I'll correct you slightly. I think the website says that your understanding of the concept of human imagination and big ideas we hope to accomplish is outdated. And, and, And the reason why we say that is the traditional construct. When we started getting constructs in the world of marketing and advertising, which was a little beyond just basic intuition. This is 70s, 80s, 90s, when PNG is like, yeah, I have a formula to do this, right? When we started creating constructs, those constructs were more like rules. Uh, They were things that worked at that time and, and actually didn't fully leverage the magic that marketing could actually insert into the world. So think about it this way, right? When We've had people who've moved masses of people forever in mankind. They didn't have neuromarketing or neuroanalytics tools. You wouldn't have a Gandhi. You wouldn't have, you know, Martin Luther King, who simply by a combination of their remarkable words and actions 
and actions consistent with those words were able to move masses of people in a non-violent movement and get them to actually get a counterparty, a strong counterparty to move back and give them space for what was rightfully theirs. So, and, and these, there are like umpteen examples in, in, in the history of the world where people have been able to do that. So you don't you need neuromarketing to be able to do this well. But what neuromarketing does tell you is it can actually tell you when it has that impact on people and when it doesn't. And with the, the growing fragmentation and the number of times we have to talk to our consumers, those special few who actually have an intuitive uh, feel about what it is that people need in, in life and society right now, those are far and few between. And as we commercialize this idea, we begin to build frameworks. And those frameworks are limiting. Those frameworks of human, human imagination, what is possible, because they are based on conscious facts. And we are way beyond the conscious facts. As I mentioned earlier, 90% mm -hmm. of human decision-making takes place in the subconscious, right? So what this means in our current situation is that going back to the example of happiness being reality minus expectation and, and trust being reality minus expectation with some sort of consistency and, and us being having no trust in our political institutions. Mm -hmm. If you look at the state of America and also not even having trust in these brands, but more so than the government, what that does is if you look at the level of anxiety and depression uh, and suicide rates in our country right now, they are at the highest levels. Essentially, it's telling you that there is a series of unmet needs. The happiness part of like reality minus expectation Reality is not matching the expectation, right? There's a plethora of unmet needs in life and society that people are craving for. They are hungry for. Like, you know, loneliness numbers are the highest they've never been on the history of this planet. Yeah. So what is the opportunity? The opportunity is if you were to tap into these unmet needs and deliver it to those people, let alone addressing them. I'm not even talking about addressing them yet. I am just talking about actually acknowledging that this is what life and of people is and that this is what people are growing through. Just acknowledging that allows you to build a certain level of trust while actually helping society move in the direction where there's a solution. So my, you know, that, that phrase that you use from the website about the concept of human imagination, right. the concept of human imagination currently sits in the conscious and we need to go just dig a little deeper and dig into the subconscious and find those unmet needs. And first, at least just start by acknowledging them, let alone addressing them. Pranav Yadav, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and for making me considerably smarter. I appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. To learn more about the great work of NeuroInsight, please visit NeuroInsight.com. That's Neuro-Insight.com. If you want to recommend a topic or a speaker for this podcast, please email me at brandpurpose at ana.net. Until next time, thanks for listening.